0: Hello and welcome to Ernie Ball's Striking a Chord podcast. I'm Evan Ball. On today's episode, we have the one and only Joe Robinson. Today, we welcome the ultra-talented Joe Robinson to the podcast. At age 16, Joe brought his acoustic guitar onto Australia's Got Talent, and he won the whole darn thing. His career has since continued to flourish, releasing solo albums, doing session work, and performing with Rodney Crowell, Emmylou Harris, and many other artists. If you haven't already, check him out on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Spotify, etc. In this episode, we talk about moving to Nashville from a tiny little town in Australia. I hit up Joe for some tips on how to play fast. We talk about practicing in general, embracing mentors, winning Australia's Got Talent, and more. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Robinson. Joe Robinson, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It's nice to be here, Evan. Cheers. All right.
0: So I believe you're in Nashville now. Uh, Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Australia, the state of New South Wales, in a small town right between Sydney and Brisbane on the East Coast. So the town is called Temagog and has a population of 200, according to Google.
0: Whoa, really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So so not a lot of clubs to play at growing up, right? In your immediate town, at least.
1: Well, it's, it's funny because my, my mom played drums in a few bands, and there are actually a lot of musicians in the area. And I mean, it wasn't unusual to drive two hours to play somewhere, but you know, I, I did find a lot of places to play, a lot of bands to sit in with and jam. It, actually, it was a really nice musical community to grow, to grow up in.
0: Oh wow! Okay, so so I guess just outside of that small town of two hundred, you have more uh, musical connections then? Yeah. Unless it's very densely populated with, uh, it's just a talent pocket.
1: Honestly, it, it really is quite incredible. You know, high proportion of musicians that that, that live there. I mean, a, a stone's throw. There's a, there's a drummer, bass player, guitar player. You know?
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: And I, I mean, it's kind of like a place where a lot of hippies live. And um, people that were kind of more interested in living up in the the bush.
0: So forgive my uh, ignorance on Australian geography, but bush does that, is that like a just refer to like rural setting, or is it like have a backwoods vibe to it, or what's?
1: Yeah, well, uh, people confuse like the bush and the outback, and the okay. outback is you know the desert where there's literally nothing, and most of Australia, you know, the middle of Australia is desert, but um, the bush is just basically living in. In the scrub, in the hills, in the middle of nowhere, if you if you doodle Earth, Timmy God, all you see is green. <laughs> okay, that would be the bush.
0: How close are you to the ocean?
1: I was about a forty-five minute drive to the ocean.
0: Okay, so yeah, the middle the middle of Australia is desert, but but then you have some greenery sort of a certain distance in from the ocean. Then I guess right. Yeah,
1: yeah. most most of the people live on the east coast, and um, yeah, from Brisbane down to Sydney, down to, down to Melbourne and Adelaide. It's 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 a beautiful a beautiful place and I I miss it a lot. I've been based in the US for about ten years now in Nashville. It's been quite the journey growing up there and then coming over here. I've never lived in an Australian city. I went straight from the bush to Nashville. Wow, what
0: do you think of Nashville?
1: Nashville's a great place. You know, it's a it's a wonderful musical community and I love the studio environment here and um Bachelorette really parties. Oh yeah. <laughs> Plenty of <laughs> see that pedal tavern going going down, you, you know what's happening.
0: No, I, I went there a couple of years ago for summer NAM, and I was just blown away at the amount of bachelorette parties there. That was pretty funny. Yeah. June and July, uh,
1: an, an intense time in, in town. The summer's hot and humid, and you know the clubs are full. Tourists are in.
0: Yeah, just packed. We were right next to, uh, to Broadway, so, so yeah, we were in the thick of it. All right, back on track. So I think I read you started playing at 10 years old. So are you hooked from the moment you start?
1: Absolutely. I started on the piano when I was like about six and uh, I just didn't like sitting still every day, practicing the piano. I didn't like being tethered to this, you know, big wooden thing, although it was a good foundation. But when I started the guitar, you know, I had to beg my parents like, please, can I quit the piano? I want to play the guitar. Hmm. And my grandma gave me a little three quarter size nylon string guitar. And my mom said to me, all right. Well, if you if you're gonna play the guitar, you, you better practice because otherwise you'll be straight back to the piano. <laughs> so I was motivated from the get-go to to um, develop my guitar skills. Sure,
0: I'm, and, and I'm sure besides the piano threat, you were had a natural passion for it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean. Up, up in the bush, there, there wasn't a lot to do. You know, we had two TV channels and our TV was like the size of a dinner plate <laughs> and, and hung there on the top shelf on the wall. You know, it was super rustic. Like we got hot water in 2001. <laughs> Before that, it was boil a pot on the stove and pour it in the bathtub for you know a warm bath. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just found I had a knack for it and really enjoyed music. And, you know, my parents would, would get together with their friends, and, you know, there'd be, you know, six or eight people s- singing, blowing in the wind, and there's smoke billowing out the bottom of the door, and I'm waking up in the middle of the night going, wow, this is kind of, <laughs> that seems kind of fun. <laughs> so I was, I was quite, quite interested in, um, you know, playing, you know, folk music, and uh, I I just wasn't interested in classical music. So the, the whole guitar appeal in, on, on every level, and I just fell in love with it, and became really, really passionate, and and uh, just it just snowballed from there. The, the the longer I've played, the more I'm fascinated with it.
0: Yeah, I've asked this with other sort of prodigy players, if you will. Is it instantly apparent that the guitar is relatively easy for you? I mean, are you, are you lapping everyone, say, like 12 months in?
1: Well, it, it's an interesting question because I remember like struggling with every single little technique. <laughs> like, I remember when artificial harp harmonics were really difficult. I remember when I couldn't get my right hands to alternate pick without it tensing up really fast. So I, I definitely like have had my frustrations with the instrument. But that being said, you know, after a year of playing, my guitar teacher said to me, Okay, I, I think, you know, you're pretty much good to go on your own now. And I um I just started learning from Tab and, you know, I remember Limewire came out and I remember YouTube and all, all these things were kind of popping up when I was a teenager and, and they became portals to this, you know, world of of, of music and forums and tab and connecting with people that were as passionate as, as me. But yeah, in, in, in the beginning, I definitely just dived in and became obsessed, but you know, I remember struggling with it for sure. It it wasn't just like a, it wasn't all easy.
0: Yeah. I'm sure, you know, there's sort of foreign finger movements and it's definitely hard for everybody, but I, I have to think it must've come to you relatively Easy, I would imagine, compared to maybe other people. I mean, kid, not that I'm, I'm putting you on the spot to brag a little bit. Did it seem apparent to you that people around you saying, Wow, this kid's just, I've been working my whole life and this kid just shows up? And
1: I remember like sitting in with bands when I was younger and people were so encouraging and, you know, just really nice to me. But when you're this kid in this small town and, you know, the town is considered like a socially disadvantaged area in relation to the rest of Australia. So it was kind of like, People from the area would look at me and be like, "Oh, he's just some local kid." There's there's a lot of guitar players out there. Like they didn't realize that it wasn't normal for a kid to be obsessed with playing the guitar. But when I met Phil Emanuel, and Phil Emanuel is Tommy Emanuel's older brother, you know, Phil st- stayed in Australia. He passed away a couple of years ago, and was just such a great mentor to me. But in Australia, you know, he was the touring guitar hero, and and I got the chance to meet him when I was. You know eleven, twelve years old, and he said, "Joe, you're one of the best guitar players I've ever seen for your age, and that was like, wow, totally changed the way I viewed myself and it just made me so much more passionate about getting good at this thing and and of course he inspired me so much and i I was exposed to a lot of music through his influence from you know Steve Morse and Aldi Miola to you know John Jorgensen and the Hellacasters, and just so so many great players and, and music that 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 Phil turned me on to. But it wasn't until that moment that I realized that, you know, not every kid was was playing like I am. And as Phil said to me, he said, "You know, Joe, most kids your age are listening to some limp biscuit crap, and here you are playing Cliff Cliff and playing Jerry Reed, you know, songs fingerstyle." And uh, he really gave me a lot of uh, encouragement, and and from yeah. there I was I was just even more obsessed, of course.
0: So speaking of, I mean, you're a fast player. Did did you ever like dial in some metal distortion and let it rip?
1: Oh yeah, i i, I was a I was pretty passionate about developing my my right hand shredding chops, you know, as a teenager. And uh, you know, I sat there with my jazz three and my metronome, doing alternate picking every morning. I remember I had a little a little heater when it was cold in Australia, it doesn't really get that cold in Australia, but I would wake up in the morning and I would practice my right hand chops and and uh... speed can teach you a lot of things about your technique because when you try to play faster and faster you start to tense up and if you can eliminate that tension you know the more you can eliminate the tension and play with a relaxed technique but still with strength and and control You know, you can just about do anything, so. um.
0: I have a technical question. So, like, when you speed up, does your form change, or should it be the same, just faster or slower? Does that make sense on Uh, your picking hand?
1: Yeah, I I think, um, you know, whether I'm playing fingerstyle or with a straight pick, I think the technique, I mean, it it is, is gonna change, and I'm I'm one of these people where people say, are you picking with the side of the pick or with the pick straight down? And it really just depends on the sound I'm going for. These things just kind of change at at their own will but for me the constant is just trying to stay relaxed trying to be as relaxed if you're playing really really slow than if you're playing really really fast so when i practice i have a metronome here and i just you know i'll set it at 60 and i'll try and play my piece just really slowly and controlled which is so super difficult and then when you speed it way up you know you're just trying to get it to sound you have the same dynamic control at a slow tempo as, as a super fast tempo and the same you know precision and control and and just relaxed forearms and, and shoulders basically
0: interesting how about this if someone were to want to play fast should they for example i pick if i'm trying to pick like tremolo pick really fast my form is totally different than if i'd be picking slower would it be better to speed up your slow picking or slow down your fast picking if that makes sense.
1: Honestly, I think if you get the fast picking dialed in uh-huh. and you figure fit out a way, like what I would do is is if you found a place where your forearm tenses up when you try to play at that tempo, whether it's like 140, dial it back down to a place where you can do it with a relaxed technique and then build upon that. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that's great. So mostly though, would you say you, you grew up Playing with a clean tone or acoustic more.
1: Or wh- well, my first band I was in, I was interested in playing 20 minute guitar solos, and I had a tube screamer and a little uh, a little Fender amp. I won the national songwriting competition when I was uh, in 2004, when I was 13, I guess. I won $1,200 for my music for the music classroom at the school, and my teacher was so great. He said, "Joe, just just buy yourself a guitar or an amp or something." <laughs> so I bought a I bought a little uh, Fender tube amp. I used a tube streamer and that little Fender Hot Rod Deluxe, I think it was. And I was just, I was into playing blues and rock and roll. And uh, yeah, I was very influenced by Eric Johnson. And mm, okay. uh, yeah, in the early days, I was definitely into playing rock and roll. But the problem was, I couldn't find people to be in a band with me that were anywhere near as passionate as me. Or so- as good as you. Well, I say, say it. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I I think there's no shortage of of talent in the world. It's just people who want it bad enough, you know. And uh, and there there were uh, people around me who had, you know, definitely had the musicality. But you know, there was a, a drummer in my first band who was, you know, really a musical guy, but he was interested in playing like hard rock, and I wanted to play like Moon Dance so I could practice the Dorian mode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So we had some creative disputes, and uh, when I first saw Tommy Emmanuel play, and I just witnessed his power and energy and the fingerstyle guitar thing, I was just like, I was so uncomfortable watching him because I knew that I had no idea how that was happening, but I had to figure it out. So as I became interested in fingerstyle guitar and acoustic guitar, that became like honestly an escape for me to to find a way to tour and travel the world and explore and compose and arrange songs without having to rely on anybody.
0: So what age was that when you saw Tommy Emmanuel and were I, inspired?
1: I saw him the first time when I had first met Phil at that festival when I was about 11 or 12. I was really into Tommy, but I was way, way into Phil's playing. Phil's more of an electric player. But, you know, Tommy came touring through the area a few times and I, I got to play a few songs for him backstage and, you know, I just became more and more fascinated with this, you know, finger style guitar uh, approach to playing and, and a, a music producer approached me and said, Hey Joe, I want to make a CD on you. You can come to my studio and I'll pay for it. And, and it'll be a great experience for you. Do you have some original songs? And I said, Oh, I've got so many original songs. They're just, they're just piled up back home and I didn't really have any. So <laughs> I, I kind of, you know, figured out how to, Worked up a few instrumental arrangements, and and he was really interested in making an acoustic album because it's simpler production-wise than you know trying to make a full band project. So I, I made a little acoustic album and started, you know, busting, playing on the streets, and playing festivals in Australia, and just started doing more acoustic things. And then I won Australia's Got Talent when I was sixteen. Oh yeah, and uh, and that really kind of established me as being, you know.
0: <laughs> well, hey, before <laughs> we get there. Uh... You know, when we just look at, at what you did at such a young age, the amount of gigs, the awards, I imagine as a family unit, everyone was, was pretty much on board with you to make this happen. Was there a, a, a balance with school and music or was it like, screw school, we're, we're doing music? How was, how was the support with your family and, and that conversation?
1: Yeah, my parents have always been super supportive of me and encouraging. And, you know, they, they made it clear that I had to do well in school. And I, I was a good student. I, I really enjoyed school. I, if I liked the teacher, I had this, you know, I inherited this attitude from my dad that if I didn't respect the teacher, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't stand being in the in the, in the classroom. But um, yeah, so I really loved math. I had great math teachers and I loved science. But it became clear that music was was just something I was going to chase all the way. And I left school midway through year 11 when I was 15 I remember the, a conversation with the principal and I sat with him and he said, okay, Joe, you've missed 60, 60 school days this term, like <laughs> every Wednesday through Friday because you were on tour with, you know, four bands. And he said, I can see that music is something that, that you're going to do as a profession. And, and you know, growing up in my town, it was like there was just nothing there, you know, I'm really thankful that, that he encouraged me to pursue music. And originally the plan was for me to go to a music college, a conservatorium of music in Sydney, something like that. But the Australia's Got Talent show came up like six months after I left school, something like that. It was a little longer. But that's that just kind of, you know, I started getting corporate gigs. And these corporate gigs, I had a corporate booking agent who said, the more you charge, the more work I can get you. And mm. I was getting paid you know, a lot of money to go and play one song for like, you know, this bank. <laughs> right. So I was not particularly interested in um, going back to school for anything other than, um, you know, when I came to America, I wanted to go to Berkeley College of Music or Musicians Institute. And so I came to California and visited Musicians Institute. And there was like a big fight that broke out in the locker room. And my mom and I, just looked at each other and was like, well, this, this isn't what I read about in guitar playing. <laughs> this doesn't seem like the right vibe. And I and I, I came to Nashville and, and fell in love with Nashville and and I went door knocking on Music Row and just met so many people here. You know, it's like the South, everyone's friendly and I played for one person and they'd say, oh, you got to meet this person, you've got to meet that person. I met a producer who worked with Brad Paisley and a lot of country artists and I went out to the uh, the studio, the, the sound kitchen, a big studio in Franklin, Outside of Nashville, and I saw a semi truck full of guitars roll up with all Brad Paisley's guitars. <laughs> and I was like, All right, this is where it's at. I right. like this in Australia. Like, you can keep the bush. I'm coming where, you know, things, things that are at this scale. So I, I, I fell in love with Nashville. And
0: how old were you then?
1: I was about 16 when I okay in Nashville, about that age. All right. Well,
0: let's talk about Amer- Australia's Got Talent. So when you're 16 you win that show and for our u.s listeners is it basically the same show as america's got talent here in the states
1: yeah pretty much
0: so huge deal
1: yeah it was it, it was a it was one of the biggest rated highest rated shows of that year it was 2008 and it was the second season it was kind of in the sweet spot of that you know whole reality tv thing yeah australian idol had been before it and you know it was pretty established but
0: okay so yeah lots of parallels here Was this was this a long term goal to get on the show to make your mark?
1: No, in fact, I'd been in Nashville and I saw the semi truck full of guitars, and I actually went back to Australia and I sat with somebody from Sony Music in in Australia, an A and R person, and uh, I handed them a list of all the people I met in Nashville. That was like, I mean, I met all three labels, I met all kinds of producers, and like a lot of music business heavyweights. And and they looked at the bit of paper and it was like wow that's that's really impressive Joe good, good for you, and they and my attitude at the time was like I'm gonna say yes to anything that's gonna get me I'm gonna say yes to every gig I'm gonna play the opening of a manhole cover I'll play anywhere anytime give me a gig and she said to me Would you like to be on Australia's Got Talent because we're looking really? for, we're looking for people to you know spice things up and c- come in and I just think you're I really believe in what you do and. This is a cool story, I'll be brief, but I went down to uh, Melbourne, filmed the first audition and got a standing ovation. And you can see that on youtube and and uh, it was it was a real you know moment in time, and people really reacted very strongly. I got a lot of like you know, votes, I guess, although actually I'm not sure if that was a voting episode, but anyway, that that episode was a big success, and they said, okay, Joe, so here's the contract where you where you sign away you know, five years of management and an option to Sony in Australia. And I said, no way am I signing that. I'm very sorry, but I want to go to Nashville. That's where I'm at. And so they said, oh, okay, well, let's just talk about it later. And so I went on the semifinal and I played and it was a great response again and they handed me the contract and said, okay, we're ready for you to sign now, Joe. And I said, no, I I told you I'm not signing that contract. Cut me out of the show. I'm I'm not signing that contract. And I had an attorney who told me, you know, the ramifications of, of me signing. And, you know, I went, I went home to the bush and, and I, I had phone calls from the head of Fremantle Media in Australia saying, Joe, I have 19 programs on the air at the moment. I don't have time to deal with this. I just need you to sign that contract. And I said all right, just cut me out. I'm not signing it. Sorry, mate. And then I remember the the head of Sony in Australia called me and I'd met him. I did kind of a showcase for Sony, you know, when I was a teenager. And he said, Joe, look, you just got to sign it. You're going to do really well out of this and we're not going to twist your arm. You know, we're, we're, we're not like that. And we really like you and believe in you. And I I, I could hear the sheep, <laughs> you know, barring in, in the background. And uh, I just remember this moment and I was just like, no, sorry, mate. I, I'm going to Nashville and I I know what that contract's about and, I, and I'm just not interested. You can cut me out and I'm perfectly fine with that. Like, I could honestly take it and leave it. And it's a testament to that the fact that the show was not rigged that I went to the grand final and I won. And they gave me uh, 250 grand Australian dollars, you know, big check. And I didn't have any commitments. So that was really wonderful. It allowed me to move to Nashville and uh, kind of just get. You know, of working visa to to come here, and uh, yeah.
0: So you're on the show, and then you win the show. I mean, that's kind of instant fame across the country. What What was that like as a teenager?
1: It was really um, surreal, and it was honestly pretty amazing because it was like one minute I was this kid who was just playing, like begging. The publicans of the venues to let me play in the in inside the, yeah. the venues and not have to have my guitar cable through the window, like I was kind of viewed as, oh yeah, there's that kid who's just always playing the guitar. And then I was like, wow, this smoking Joe, like he's the famous. He's in the Sunday crossword puzzle this week. <laughs> so it, it really changed my perceptions, and I felt that certainly. But in fact, six days after winning the show, I was back on a plane to Nashville to record an album. You know, and I came here, and nobody knew who I was or what I was about. So I kind of skipped, you know, the the heart of it, to be honest.
0: So you've played with all kinds of well-known musicians. Can you mention a couple highlights thus far in your career?
1: Sure. Well, I I, I really feel that every good thing in my musical journey has happened because of a mentor, and so there have been a lot of great mentors to to me. You know, I've um. I've become friends with a lot of my guitar heroes and jammed with them, like Eric Johnson and Tommy Emmanuel and Robin Ford and Steve Vai. You know, I, in Nashville, I've, I've done a lot of sessions in town with the top musicians. And, you know, I play in er, Lou Harris's band occasionally and play, play with Rodney Crowell, Grammy award-winning sing, singer-songwriter and, you know, someone who I'm a massive fa- fan of. And, yeah,
0: longtime Ernie Ball uh, friend, too.
1: Yeah, w- w- wonderful guy, an incredible songwriter, one of the best. Who else? Well, there's been countless people. You know, I opened for Aldi Miola and Paco de Lucia, and I've opened for Paco Pena and played the Bonaroo Music Festival. And
0: yeah, that's quite a list. That's quite a list. I know everything's weird right now, but but let's say pre-COVID, how did you split up your time? Like writing, session work, performing, videos, maybe. Uh, what was the makeup of Joe Robinson's career?
1: Roughly, I would average 150 shows a year, so about. I was gone about half the time. That seems to be the kind of the way it worked out, you know, in the last ten years of being in Nashville.
0: And are those gigs split between your own stuff and playing with other other musicians?
1: Well, I only started really playing with other people three about three years ago. Before then, I was just you know I was just touring doing Joe it. Robinson. Yeah, but yeah. I. But I I got to a point where it was actually Robin Ford that said to me I I was in this guitar ensemble with Robin Ford and Leroy Parnell called Guitar Army, and Robin said you know Joe I just want to plant a seed with you he said when I was about when I was in my twenties I got an opportunity to play with Joni Mitchell and he said and you know I was so committed to my own career and my own name that I almost turned it down and he said I just want you know that was the creative highlight of. You know, one of the creative highlights of my journey. Oh, wow! And if an opportunity like that comes up to collaborate with someone, I think I just want to tell you that, that that can be really transformative. And so, honestly, I I kind of started working with Rodney because I knew I wanted a window into how he crafts those incredible songs. And to me, he had all the things that I that I was wanting to learn more about, from lyric writing to songwriting and arranging. And through Rodney, you know, I. I Connected with Emmy Lou and and you know just started doing more sessions and got plugged into the Nashville world more and you know it's been re- really wonderful but you know generally speaking I've mostly been doing um, sh- shows under my own name you know I, when I was um, moving to America I had to write a application to get a, a visa and I'd played a thousand shows and I and I listed them on my application <laughs> and then a few years ago I I went back and counted all my old calendars and I, I've done two thousand concerts. And that's, oh, that's amazing. Pretty cool. I'm really proud of that. I feel like I've really, you know, been out there and and put my ten thousand hours in on stage, <laughs> been in front of an audience ten thousand hours.
0: So so post COVID, whatever that means, do you have a plan or what do you see that looking like for you?
1: Well, this has been an amazing year for me because you know I haven't played shows since you know well oh, about a year now, and I um I've reached more fans than ever online. Oh, that's like, fantastic. Wanna, so you're talking
0: about more recording or doing more session work or both or, or more social media videos or all of the above?
1: All of the above. I recorded an album uh, in thirty days and released it called Borders, which was my most recent album. Yeah. And that was a really liberating experience to to learn, you know, how quickly I could put out really, you know, music that I was proud of. So I definitely wanna spend more time recording and releasing, you know, the whole release an album every two, three years is thing is just seems like such such an old, old way of doing it. So uh, yeah, I want to be prolific on every level from videos to connecting with people online through live streams. I remember putting up my first YouTube video in 2006. And I have to say, I I underestimated the power of, of the internet. And that's one thing that this year has taught me is, you know, the, the ability to connect is right there. And there's nothing like playing on stage for people. But you know, I, I, just being totally honest, it's going to be difficult. Well, I don't think touring is going to be the same again for me. I've certainly learned that. You know, it's actually you really cut expenses by by staying at home as well. You know, it's expensive yeah. being out there, paying for all your expenses, paying taxes, paying your management, and your agents, and everything. It's it's um it's it's a whole it's a whole thing.
0: Do you have a preferred uh, social media platform, YouTube or Instagram or Facebook, that you'd encourage people to check out?
1: Yeah, I mean. It, probably go to my YouTube channel is a good archive of my music, but I mean on Facebook they have that share button and every time I put up a yeah. video I have so many people share it. And it seems like that's the platform that, that pops because of that functionality. It's a brave new world and it's always changing and you know I had a video on TikTok pop up, you know, and get <laughs> a lot of hits the other day playing the entertainer by Scott on So who knows what, what's gonna um Yeah, that's cool.
0: So what's Joe's 12?
1: Okay, Joe's 12 is an online learning platform that I created where I interviewed a lot of my mentors and we created a course that I think is unlike anything available to people. Over the 12 weeks, you go from practicing to touring to recording to songwriting to arranging to your why and your mission to collaboration you know, we cover all these different aspects of, of music. And, you know, this course really changed my life. And I know it has the power to change people's lives. We've had just rave reviews about it. But I interviewed, you know, Steve Vai and Eric Johnson and uh, Rodney Crowell and Gary Nicholson and um, Eric Johnson and Robin Ford and Tommy Emmanuel, just a lot of my biggest heroes and mentors. And, you know, in week one, you'll hear from Eric Johnson and Steve Vai and me talking about practicing and what we do to practice. And, uh, yeah, anyone that's interested can go to Joes12.com and, and and sign up. I think it's a really a really powerful powerful platform.
0: Yeah, that sounds fantastic. So basically anyone who's interested in making music their livelihood, I mean this is sort of a crash course, right? I mean it's almost like a, a little certificate program, maybe.
1: Exactly. You know, I, I feel like I I was schooled on the road and I and in my bedroom. When I was a teenager, I had this archive of music, instructional DVDs, and VHS tapes. A lot of them were bootlegged, admittedly, but I learned to play from videos and was so inspired by you know, a lot of the people in, in this in this program. And but so those was
0: like the Hotlicks or Starlicks VHS tapes?
1: Do you all remember? Of, all of that. Yeah. I had a bunch of the Starlicks ones, a bunch of the Hotlicks ones, Yeah, a bunch of in, independently produced ones, a, a a bunch of ones on every on Albert Lee and John Petrucci and Steve mm-hmm. Morse and Eric Johnson's ones and I used to eat my cereal in the morning watching Danny Gatton videos <laughs> you know, I was uh really transformed by the power of video so what I wanted to do is combine you know everything I've learned and point people in in certain directions of things that really inspired me and influenced me and package it into this course that people could take in 12 weeks so yeah it's really a a window into how I did what I did for whatever that's worth in twelve weeks. And you can see the relationship between Tommy Emmanuel and myself and how that mentor student, you know, rapport works. Cause I think it's just so it's so important and it's so important to have good mentors. And mentors can be people you read about and people you listen to, music you listen to. But when you can get to know a mentor in person, it's it's really, of course, it's very special.
0: Yeah, that that's interesting. So in addition to studying other musicians, do you listen to sort of like entrepreneurial figures, like more general voices on achieving expertise?
1: I, I definitely do. I, um, I've um i become really passionate about reading over the last few years. You know, I feel like being that I didn't go to college, I used to kind of feel, you know, a little bit of an inferiority complex when I was around people with a college education who had that college experience. And I, I felt fa- it was like this light bulb moment once I started reading that, I can acquire a lot of the information that I felt like I was missing. I read 85 books last year <laughs> and I, I I post the list of books I, I read, you know, I've made like a little YouTube video each year at the end of the year and say, oh, this is the books These are the books I read this year. And and uh, I'm incredibly inspired by, you know, people from history and, and psychology and philosophy. And, you know, I've read just about everything Friedrich Nietzsche wrote and uh, Dostoevsky and uh, oh,
0: you have a way better education than most people with a college degree.
1: I um, you know, I just can't help what I'm interested in, and I'm interested in a, in a lot of things. But you know, and I, I think that's the same with with a lot of people, and and that's you know one of the unfortunate things about school is you have this kind of curriculum that's set out, and that's not going to work for everybody. But as a saying by Nassim Taleb, only the autodidacts are free, and uh, you know once you are kind of liberated from, you know, studying for a certificate. I I think it's just it's such an adventure to dive into a a new thinker, a new writer, a new set of ideas, and there's just it's just yeah. absolutely a limitless, you know, world of of inform information and inspiration out there. It's, well,
0: it's, it's kind of a parallel between say being forced to play piano versus having this natural passion to teach yourself guitar.
1: Yeah, you, you know, it's, to-
0: there's no replacement for that natural passion. It's not like you have to go to class. Like right? this is what you. You want to learn this stuff. So it's just, it's naturally going to soak in better.
1: Definitely. And I think everyone has an instrument. I think, you know, I mean, I've wanted so badly to play drums for so many years. And I sit there with my practice pad and I, and I practice and I've took drum lessons and I've really tried, but it's just not my instrument. But guitar, it just feels like, you know, An extension of my body and piano was not that for me. So I think everyone has their own instrument and everyone has their own, you know, little knacks, uh, a little bit of a knack for this, a little bit of a knack for that. Yeah.
0: Well, but yeah, back to to Joe's 12. So a lot of this, the academic stuff, do you do? Do you work that into the course, maybe looking at achievement in more of a scientific way?
1: Yeah. I interviewed Daniel Levitin for the course and Daniel is a um, cognitive neuroscientist. And a great musician and songwriter, and uh, he wrote "This Is Your Brain on Music," which was a you know a, a really important book and a very popular book um, released a, a number of years ago now. And uh, I was quite interested in talking to Daniel about you know his recommendations for practicing according to science, and uh, and you know the topic of deliberate practice came up and how important it is to be intentional with your practicing. You know, de- definitely the, the work of Ericsson from the ten thousand hour I- I idea, and a lot of these kind of performance experts um, in the in the psychology personal development space. You know, I try to bake that in to my approach of you know, for for example, I, I keep a practice journal, and I practice in fifteen minute blocks, and I kind of cross train, you know, from technical things to you know, muscle memory exercises, to practicing in front of a mirror, to working on my timing. And, you know, I'd really try to be deliberate and intentional. And I find these bite-sized chunks allow me to, to be really focused and accomplish a lot in a short amount of time. And um, yeah, I, I, I definitely don't pretend to be a scientist and don't pretend to be you know, a- anything other than someone very passionate and very passionately curious, and someone that spent a lot of hours behind a guitar playing, and and you know, I've learned a few things about about what works and and what doesn't for me. Yeah, de- definitely try to, try to bake all that inf- information into Joe Joe's Twelve, as well as you know, I have courses on True Fire and and and, and different places. Mm,
0: great. Well, yeah, that I mean, it makes sense. There's only so many hours in a day, so make them count. Absolutely. Uh, looking into the future, what do you want life to look like ten years from now?
1: That's a great question. I've been thinking about the future so much lately. You know, just wondering what the music business is going to look like after COVID, for one. You know, it's uh, I, I feel like I want to live in the future, and I want to know what that is. And it's it's scary to see how quickly things are things are changing. I actually think that I'm interested in going back to the past as I go into the future. So, I'm interested in a simpler life. Recently, I've been buying all my produce and groceries from lo- from local farms and locally sourcing everything. And this idea of, I- I've always wanted to do this, but I've never been home long enough to do it. I have a garden going. And the idea of scaling down and becoming less dependent on you know, I, I, I think the world is going to decentralize it somehow. Mm. And uh, that's kind of one strong, you know, idea I'm I'm pulled towards f- from the future. You know, I I think a song, a great song is still going to be a great song. And I think people who have spent the time honing a craft, if it's something that people are, you know, I mean, music is something that's been fascinating to, to humans for, you know, eons and so if you craft the ability to create interesting compelling music and have mastery of your instrument i think that's going to be you know in in, in demand as long as there's people in in the world um, i'm
0: interested you said that you think things will be decentralized which is interesting to me because i think of like things going in the opposite direction with amazon and, and these sort of winner take all companies that we have in the winner take all economy where it's one person serving all these people i don't know if that's that relates to to what you're seeing if, if that's a, a different tangent
1: yeah it, it does and you know before covid you know i was actually in china and uh and it was unbelievable to see how that country had transformed i was there in 2013 i did a tour and then i did a tour again in 2019 and uh you know seeing the scale of of technological development in the cities. I mean, it was beyond anything I've ever seen in the the West. And, uh, you know, it made me nostalgic about how great my childhood was when things were much simpler. You know, I mean, I think the idea of just people being so addicted to the, their phones, you know, and we, we all are, I mean, it's totally rewired our brains. And in some ways, you know, you can listen to podcasts and audiobooks all day and just be continually fed this wonderful information and inspiration. But I just think that's, going you know, people are going to get sick of that eventually. And it has to...
0: So sort of a cultural backlash?
1: Yeah, it has to come back, back around. I, I think so. Yeah. Interesting. And I, and I think that's got to that'll happen with... With consumption in some way, and i and I don't, I don't really know how that's going to play out amazon is a is an amazing example because you know I mean I have friends that make a living on amazon it's it's not just Amazon sure. they, but they're empowering a lot of you know smaller party sellers yeah so it's hard to know hard to yeah. know
0: what, all right here's another one if you could give your teenage self a piece of advice, what would it be
1: Read books yeah <laughs> and and my teenage self got given a lot of money and and I grew up, you know, pretty poor. And a number of years later that money was gone. And mm-hmm. then um, so that 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 is my big like, oh my how did I do that? <laughs> I, I remember I was I'm on stage with Rodney Crow and he introduces me and says that I, you know, won this TV show and they gave me a bunch of money. And I remember when I, I sat in with Les Paul and he said you won a TV show and they gave you 250 grand. He said, what are you doing here? <laughs> he said, why aren't you at the, in Vegas? And, um, and I, I had to confess to Rodney. I said, you know, Rodney, I, I blew through that money and he looked at me and said, you're going to make it in this music business. Boy, I know it. <laughs> We've all done that, but yeah, that, that would be yeah. my advice is don't piss your money away. Yeah. <laughs> That's
0: great. All right. Last question. What kind of strings are you playing?
1: On my acoustic guitar, I'm using pa- Paradigm strings at the moment, mm. and I, um, I use a custom gauge. So I, I take a set of lights, so instead of 12 to 54s, but I put a higher E string on. So I buy single 14s, 15s, sometimes even 16s, and I you, I like a higher you know, E string.
0: Yeah, like yeah. a heavier gauge, right? So exactly. your So your first string is like a 14?
1: Yeah, 14 or 15. I've been playing a sixteen lately, actually, and I did that for a long time. I've been doing this for you know, about 7 or 8 years. And uh, the guitars I play, I play mate and acoustic guitars, and I have a new signature model called the JR Signature. You know, the necks on these guitars are so solid and sturdy, and, you know, you get the neck nice and straight. I use a larger fret, you know, the setups, so it's very easy to play, and the, the higher tension, just it just sings. and I And I like the way it feels having a little more meat on the high E.
0: Wow, so you're still tuned to E standard tuning.
1: Yeah. And
0: then what's your second string then? Do you have to ratchet that up too or do you keep it where it is?
1: I keep it at a 16.
0: Interesting. So that's just a ton more tension on that first string.
1: Yeah. And when I play fingerstyle guitar, you know, what I'm really trying to do is get the melody to to really speak and get the bass notes to, you know, have their place as well and and I feel that if if the melody is, is just kind of a little bit thin, thinner sounding up top. I just, I just struggle with it, and I like the way it feels. Yeah, just having that, that warmer, thicker, rounder high E. And I've just gotten used to it, and I really like it. And I do it with electric guitars. Sometimes I'll, I'll put, I'll use a set of 11s, and then I'll put a 12 on, on top. But I, honestly, I, I'm just fine playing a set of set of 11s on electric and yeah, you know, just slinkies.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you use a uh, phosphor or eighty twenty bronze on the uh, acoustic?
1: Usually phosphor bronze. Yeah. Although on some guitars, you know, I try to change it up a, a little bit. And, you know, I, I've heard that theory that gu- guitars respond if you kind of change up the strings, the type of strings you use occasionally. And, and uh, yeah, I, I sometimes I'll go to 80 20 bronze and I'll be like, oh, yeah, I, I quite like that. But then I'll go back to phosphor and I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's the, right. that's the sound that made me fall in love with acoustic guitar. So, yeah.
0: All right. Good stuff. Well, Joe Robinson, thanks for being on the podcast.
1: My pleasure, Evan. Thank you for having me. And and, uh, it it was really fun.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Striking Accord, an Ernie Ball podcast. Make sure to follow Joe Robinson on social media. He's always putting out really great content. And if you feel inclined, why not give this podcast a nice review on iTunes or other platforms? You can contact us at strikingaccord at ernieball.com.
1: beautiful (laughs) spot out there yeah San Luis Obispo is that yeah have you come out here I was there once yeah I played a big theater there with Rodney Crowell that's where I first met Sterling and uh looking forward to returning sometime in future
0: okay and you played with Rodney and then Sterling came okay is that how the Ernie Ball connection started
1: yeah that was that was the first time I met Sterling Uh and uh you know Derek and a few other people had I crossed paths with him at the Clapton Crossroads Festival last year, well in 2019 actually, and um, kind of been in touch with everybody a, yeah. a little, bit. but uh, yeah. that was the first time meeting Sterling. and, and he, he's a he's a character and. <laughs>